Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Natalie Latovsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we're still here. It's been over a month. We didn't do this last time, last year, but it seems like after Halloween, it was just like a massive brick wall for a little bit there. Sometimes I think we get so excited in October and we're watching movies constantly that once we get into November, we're just like, well, maybe we'll take like a little movie break and watch some TV and chill out and realize we don't have much to talk about with all you nice people. So uh, we've watched some more movies. And now we're back. Well, we also wanted to make sure we got at least a couple episodes in for the end of the year including something holiday-themed. You always try to tag something to the big holidays, so Mm -hmm. we have a plan for next time. But if all goes well, this will be the first of two episodes we're doing for December. And this goes back to something we watched a while ago, actually. Like, right after Halloween, we launched into watching the Omen movies. Three of them, anyway. Well, the Omen trilogy. (laughs) To explain that briefly, of course, is... Many people who are listening to this probably already know. So there's The Omen in 1976, which is a horror classic for a variety of reasons, which we'll discuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it had two sequels in theaters, Damien Omen 2 in 1978, and The Final Conflict, which when it was promoted didn't even have Omen in the title, but now retroactively they call it Omen 3, The Final Conflict, in 1981. And that is The Omen Trilogy. And I said, let's do all the Omen movies. And by all, I mean, forget Omen for The Awakening, the TV movie from 1991, because whether or not Faye Grant is in it is immaterial, it's terrible. Uh, and I did buy the box set, which has that in it. Mm-hmm. And it also has in it a remake that apparently exists from 2006 with Cotton Weary playing Gregory Peck. <laughs> but uh, I'm not remotely interested in that. No, I never have been either. I think the casting was pretty good. The casting sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's just uh, you and I both have difficulty, I think, watching remakes of movies that we think were done well the first time. Well, here's the thing. We've based a lot of past episodes of this show on watching a movie and its remake. Mm -hmm. So it, it would seem like something that makes sense to do. But this time we just kind of thought, nah. And I mean, tell us. Dear listeners, if you think we should watch it, in which case maybe we'll we'll revisit. But I think both of us just kind of felt like maybe if there were only one Omen movie and then we watched the remake, okay. But once we've gone through the trilogy, I feel like that's that's sufficient. And also another thing I decided when we were watching them, I decided this when we were watching the movies from the beginning, but now especially as we're trying to get ourselves back into the recording mode, it seems even more appropriate for the circumstances. But I thought, you know, we've done a lot of franchises, and I love doing that with the show, and previously we did it on Doctor of the Dead, too, where we go through a series, and there are plenty other series we could do. Mm-hmm. But for this one, I thought, you know, maybe let's just do one episode on all three and talk about them more as of a piece. And I think not joking, but I think that part of it was we realized there isn't necessarily a lot to say about each one individually, but maybe we could talk about them all as a saga that has a beginning, middle, and end. Because when you watch one to three, which is the complete Omen trilogy, yes, yes, yes we've established Then <laughs> uh, there is a beginning, middle, and end. 
and and we could talk about that. And I thought, you know, that makes the most sense. It's, it is sort of like the birth to death life cycle of of Damien. And yeah. so it does make sense as a trilogy. And if it were being done now, maybe they'd do it as a TV series where it's like different seasons would be different sections oh, of his life. They would belabor the point for sure. <laughs> Eight episode seasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would be terrible. So before we launch into movies, as always, full spoilers abound. Starting off with the original, The Omen from 1976. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you! Directed by Richard Donner of the Superman movies fame. Quite a uh, stellar cast, led by Gregory Peck, who famously, of course, could only convince himself to do the movie if he didn't actually think it was a horror film and thought he was in a psychological thriller, which for the most part it does on a certain level play out that way. And then you got a lot of other people in this that anybody who's particularly a fan of British character actors and Doctor Who would love including Patrick Troughton, who was, you know, the second Doctor. And I think, well, it's got to be. It's certain that I saw him actually in this before I ever saw him as in mm-hmm. Doctor Who, so that's kind of interesting. And David Warner, who's just one of the greatest British character actors of all time, and who in recent years I've come to realize is apparently one of the nicest guys you could ever work with in British character actordom. Every behind-the-scenes trivia for every movie he's ever been in at least has something about like how delighted everybody was to work with David Warner. Yeah, which I think is the only reason he turns up in the Scream series is that someone was like, sit him down in the chair and, and we'll talk to him for a few minutes. So he's in this uh, and, you know, as a significant part, and basically he's kind of the sidekick for most of the movie. It's mm. him and Gregory Peck working to figure out what is about this mysterious kid, and the basic premise being that It's 1976, although later movies will change that. It's 1976, and uh, this movie came along at a time, as we kind of explored recently with my 50th birthday episode, Mm, came along at a time when the 70s were obsessed with religious themes and horror, Christian um, symbolism. Satanic panic. Satanic panic. Yep. And everything from Rosemary's Baby through The Exorcist through to this, you can draw a straight line. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's tons of other terrible versions of this. And one day, maybe we'll get to some of that because surely there are 50 Italian movies happening (laughs) at the same time. But this one came along and is a pretty mainstream film, too, with Donner directing and Gregory Peck. And and it's not like a B-movie by any means, but it actually kind of is... It's been a long time since I revisited it. So the short version, of course, is Gregory Peck is someone who's like steps away from the presidency of the United States. He's an ambassador to England, an ambassador to England, by the way, who apparently never does any actual work. He's got a a clean schedule every day. Low oversight. to, To go and research the birth of this other kid. His wife has a child, but the child dies, which, of course, turns out to be probably all part of the plot to get mm-hmm. Damien where he needs to be. And he is convinced to lie to his wife and replace the dead child with one they just happen to have available for him. And then as things start to get weird later on... I like you say start to get weird. It's pretty weird, it's weird from, from the start. <laughs> where they're like, sir, we're sorry, um, your baby died. But funny story... We also just happened to have a baby lying around, and uh, the baby's mother 
Um, you know, she had no family. The girl had no family. Nobody knew her. This girl has no family. Nobody knows that she worked here. It'll be as though she never existed. And, uh, she's dead, weirdly. And so, uh, we don't know what to do with this baby. And we're thinking, why don't you just lie to your wife, the love of your life, the woman you spend all your time with, and say, uh, this is our beautiful son, because who's gonna know, really? What could go wrong? And, uh, don't question it. Yeah, and he goes along with that. Yeah, he resists it for, what, all 30 seconds or so? For, like, 30 seconds. He's like, mm, I don't know. I guess I'm okay with it, but kind of want my own. But she really wanted a baby, and uh, it's probably not something we want to wait another nine months for. So uh, this one's already here, I guess. It's more like, you know, this is our beautiful baby boy. <laughs> if I tried to do Gregory Peck, <laughs> it would not go well. Definitely our son. Okay. The only reason we did this is because you do such a killer peck. Uh, ten four killer peck. It's, so, it's not supposed to be comedy, really, but it feels a little comedic at well, the start. Part of what I'm going to say as we're moving forward that I was kind of trying to hint at at the beginning is <laughs> I don't actually have as high opinion of this as I think a lot of people think it deserves. But I, but I, I used to. Mm. But I don't think this movie ages very well. So. So they accept the baby and basically finish the premise, obviously, like as things get crazy uh, and deaths start to happen around them and the, the history of the child's true background, he winds up teaming up with a very inquisitive photographer and reporter from uh, some unnamed organization. He also has like no paper as far as we know, no place he actually works, but he does have a camera and the two of them decide to start investigating only to find out, of course, that, you know, spoiler alert, lo and behold, Damien is actually the Antichrist, the son of Satan, and actually the son of a jackal. And uh, therefore, he has been placed there in order to put him near the presidency of the United States as part of the eventual plan for the Antichrist to dominate the planet. As one does. But anyway, that's the premise of The Omen, and it features a lot of set pieces that are well-remembered and will often play in any retrospective on mm. 70s horror. And I agree that a lot of those do stand the test of time. There are moments like the like the part where the first um the first housekeeper, like caretaker for Danny. Nanny, it's his nanny. Yeah, where she actually hangs herself at his birthday party in full view of everybody. That is an incredible sequence. Mm-hmm. It's all for you moment. And and the fact It's when you first learn that Satan's real showy. Yeah. Satan likes a spectacle. <laughs> and then, of course, the other thing is that as Warner's character, as he starts taking pictures, he notices that his pictures are actually foretelling the deaths of the people and the ways they're going to die. So, like, pictures of Troughton as the priest show a line through him, and, of course, eventually he's going to get the weather vane through him. And one of the most interesting things in the whole movie to me is the fact that as we discover more about Father Brennan, Patrick Troughton's character, keeps trying to warn Gregory Peck, this kid you've got is the Antichrist. I never want to see you again. You see me in hell, Mr. Thorne? There we will share out our sentence. He's terrible at warning. He's terrible at warning. And also we find out this part I always kind of I always kind of liked is that we find out he was the Antichrist. Like basically the Antichrist is a state of existence 
where someone is born in human form that's meant to be the Antichrist, and it is apparently possible to resist that fate because Troughton's character apparently went into the priesthood, surrounded himself with Christian religion to the point of being in a room filled with crosses, and successfully held back for a lifetime becoming the Antichrist to the point where apparently at some point they just decided, well, we need another one. And, and <laughs> had right, another Mulligan, do-over. Yeah, so I mean, what's interesting about that is it means that it can be stopped, which has a bearing on the first sequel anyway that I want to talk about. But I like his character in this, even though he's terrible at really... I like his character, but also some of it just really doesn't make sense. Like, for example... If Satan is skilled enough at just, like, killing you whenever he feels like it, which it seems to be kind of his thing, I don't understand how this particular, like, Antichrist incarnation was permitted to live to adulthood. And maybe it's like Satan's like, well, I mean, you know, he's mine. I don't want to kill him exactly. And he's harmless. Maybe it's just until he started warning. That's when he's like, ugh, this one. So he got rid of him. But even then, all the Christianity in the world, like literally being a priest, literally trying to seek shelter in a church, like that's not enough to save him. And that's the message you're getting like pretty early on in that first movie, which kind of goes off the rails later. Well, one of the things about this movie and the whole series that I guess is fascinating to us from what I guess you'd call an outsider's perspective. Yeah. I mean, when you look at a movie like The Exorcist, one of the reasons why The Exorcist is so respected by a lot of Christian horror fans is that for all intents and purposes, The Exorcist presents a positive representation of the existence of the Christian God. It has to be, because there is in fact a devil, and the power of God does allow them to expel the demon, mm. not the devil per se, but Pazuzu, but the demon that is possessing Reagan. Basically, the priesthood and all the trappings and everything represented in the exorcist, to a certain extent, there demonst it demonstrates that it works. It's real. It's mm. all real. And so even though the evil part is real, it's sort of a fundamental reinforcement of faith. Then you get to the omen, which really seems like it should do that, but it doesn't for a variety of reasons. And obviously we're speaking from outside the realm yeah. here. But there are a lot of things about it that don't work. So for instance, uh, one of the things that's certainly true is anybody, and, and, they're, and we're not biblical scholars, but I know enough looking it up to know. Mm -hmm. Anybody that knows this stuff knows that most of the things represented in this movie about the Antichrist aren't actually real. In other words, not, well, of course, none of it's real. But... but but they aren't represented in the Bible or in any actual source. A lot of things about the Antichrist in this movie were made up for the movie. And what's fascinating, as many scholars have since discussed, is how much this movie established for many people, including people that think they're religious or full of faith, mm -hmm. what the Antichrist is that has nothing to do with the Bible or the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is misquoted. There's quotes that... Patrick Troughton's character states that it's like it's like the uh, even a man speech in the Wolfman. It's not from the Book of Revelation. They say it is, but it isn't. 
Yeah, if Troughton were a student, he would be getting a D at best <laughs> right. on his paper. So it's like there's a lot of stuff in here that's just flat out fiction. Mm-hmm. And but presented as fact. Presented as fact. And to this day, there are people that actually think they know things from the book of Revelation that are in this film mm-hmm. and the subsequent sequels and have nothing to do with it. One of the things I think is most fascinating to me is the idea that like baked into the whole premise here and another great character actor that a lot of people who are British character actor fans will remember from like The Prisoner and and Help is Leo McKern who appears in this as Bugenhagen who has the daggers the seven daggers of Megiddo that can destroy the Antichrist all crap (laughs) the creator for the film but also this idea that you have to kill the Antichrist with the seven daggers arrayed like a cross when biblically the Antichrist's presence on Earth and the apocalypse and the events that will unfold are supposed to happen. In other words, we're supposed to go through a period with the Antichrist who will eventually be defeated. Mm. And in other words, killing the Antichrist, we're not supposed to do that. It's supposed to happen. But this represents this idea that if the Antichrist shows up, it's time to pull the daggers out and take them down, which is not how this is supposed to work. You know, so there's a lot of stuff in this that is pure fiction, even from the biblical side of things. And then on top of it, you've got the devil who (laughs) one of my favorite stand up comics in the past was David Cross. And he used to do some great stuff about how he couldn't ever be Catholic because he doesn't believe in monsters. And one of the things he talks about is the devil, where like you could apparently turn away the devil with a cross like oh no a symbol and in this you see it's like he's supposed to be so powerful but he can only kill you if he sets up a final destination rube goldberg device (laughs) to do it and also to actually protect the antichrist all he's got is a human powered woman and a puppy so what you know why it's a very vicious puppy it is but also mind control powers his enemy is god and yet God also allowed their real child to be murdered, mm-hmm. uh, allowed Damien to come into their lives, allows lots of other collateral damage. Doesn't protect the family at all. In any way. Not once. And although the devil theoretically is definitely ahead of the game, he also has to jump through a lot of hoops, apparently, to make things happen. There's a lot of rules that aren't clear to this whole thing. And it's it's one of the elements to me that... I think you find in pretty much any movie that has a religious undertone slash just religion in the real world is that it always seems to be some kind of game between God and the devil, a game between like various gods in the pantheon. If you're looking at it from like a Hercules perspective, whatever it is. I was going to say, you don't like fantasy movies, but how often in like Clash of the Titans and that stuff, they're all playing chess games with human beings. With just like little people. Yeah. And that's exactly what the undertone is in all of this, that to both God and the devil, humans don't matter. They're just the pieces In this game that they're playing, and not only that, but they're playing the game apparently full well knowing what the outcome's going to be. But for some reason, they're like, well, we'll play it anyway. And like each time the devil seems to be like, maybe this time I'll win. And God just sits there and lets chaos happen for decades and is like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And then at the last minute, just kind of reaches down and goes, boop, and then wins. And it's like, first of all, you didn't put in the work. You didn't protect anybody. You're just like, whatever, kill whoever you want. I'm just watching the clock. And when it rolls to the point where I win, I'm just going to reach down and say, I win. And everyone kind of goes for it. Which, by the way, is how this whole series winds up ending. Basically. We'll get, we'll get, we'll there. get there. Yeah. But um, to me, it's just, that's part of what in rewatching it was so frustrating for me. Because I remembered it as being this like atmospheric classic. I don't feel it has nearly as much atmosphere as mm -hmm. I used to think it did. But I do think it's had an extraordinary amount of influence. Yes. And so I think that's still what to me keeps it in the classic territory. Like you bring up Final Destination. It's like I think movies like that don't really exist without this because Final Destination really is a game of fate played with humans and it's not really clear is it god and the devil they hint at they it they kind of hinted the devil in three don't yeah they? like maybe it is but also speaking of three the whole premise is built around someone who takes photographs that then ultimately show potentially how people are gonna yeah. die though it takes a lot more interpretation and, yeah you know but this is also fits into that subcategory we've had fun experiencing too where it's like you're seeing it's like oh this is where that came from yeah. like a lot of final destination movies come from the omen actually and this is certainly not the first movie where no. it is super creepy no but i mean it's like the one where everyone thinks of it because ultimately in with the, the Village of the Damned, by the way. Mm, Children of the Damned. Yeah. That, that stuff's like that, yeah. You know, you get Children of the Corn, too. We're talking yeah, of, like, which creepy comes children. This, comes after. Yeah. You know, you got more recently movies like um, The Orphan. Mm. You know, has that whole, especially because it's The Orphan, has, sure. like, that Damien vibe to it. So, it's sort of something that continues to to influence down the line. It has some really terrible soundstage scenes that are supposed to be outside that very clear like the whole cemetery scene the cemetery scene where they where find they the jackal yeah that doesn't look too good it does not it looks it looks like a set from the wolfman it i would say it, it feels very like roger corman the undead yeah. filming in a grocery store yeah so, I mean, yeah. it's a little rough around the edges. I would love to see the movie that Gregory Peck thought he was in. <laughs> because his... It's a psychological thriller. He has actions, little face-off. He does great. It. In I mean, he takes Peck. it very seriously. But also, at least in, in this movie, and maybe this is supposed to set up for us the fact that based on what happens to Damien as a child, Satan's like, oh, I better step my game up in the protection arena moving forward, or if they even were thinking about a sequel when they made it. But Satan's helpers are, like, not that helpful. Like, even the overly devotional, like, satanic nanny, Nanny Mark II, who comes in, just shows up at the house, and I was like, the agency totally sent me. He's Billy Whitelaw, by the way. And is great. creepy as all get out right from the start. But also, she's, like, British, and so they guess they kind of think, like, I guess that's just what British nannies are like. Like Mary Poppins. Yeah, I mean, so she's real creepy from the start, and they're like, sure, whatever, watch the kid. 
didn't we have one of those epiphany moments too? We found out like her last, I think it was her last role. She's in Hot Fuzz. She's the one who does the crossword puzzle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, was, I mean, and he knew that when of he put course. her in there. Yeah. And it's just one of those where like, she's like the only one who can uh, be nice with like the hell puppy who just like wanders onto the estate. And she's like, I thought it'd be good to have a dog around. And they're all like, that's fine. But what about like a Labradoodle or something? <laughs> like this thing looks evil and wants to kill the rest of the family. I didn't get to pick out the dog. But then like, in the end, right. after like all of that work in protecting Damien, all Gregory Peck has to do is trick the dog into walking into the basement and mm-hmm. lock the door and then beat the nanny up in the kitchen in like a real weird struggle scene and yeah. defeats her pretty much instantly. And then rather than say putting the kid in the car and just driving out and like tip of the cap to the guards at the gate, like, you know, he's being fussy, just taking him for a drive. Okay. He comes like roaring out the front gate of the house where they're like, something's up, something's up. And like, now you've got a cop chase on your hand. Mm -hmm. And even then he doesn't seem to try to lose them at all. He's like, the cops are only a car length behind me, but I've got time to run into the church and very carefully, ritualistically murder my child with a very specific set of dagger motions on it. Like, no, you get there. There, you got a 20 second head start max before you're like, I'm gonna do this thing. You're not, you're not gonna do it. So, no one ever really thinks through anything they're doing in this, and it's just a whole lot of people like dying for unclear reasons. It's like, where exactly is God in all of that? Where you start to think, you know. I mean, obviously, not a great guy, really big on torture, murder, like, odd and weird, but maybe maybe Satan's the one who uh, has more devotional followers here and more influence over the world. It's like, this one, I think, kind of like what you were saying, this is not like a sales pitch for God or Christianity in any way. Well, the other thing, too, is if you look at it from the perspective of of that being maybe at least partly intentional. I mean, nobody was making any grand statement, I think, with this. I mean, a lot of this came about because some of the producers, people involved, were like, hey, the Antichrist is... And, and it sounds like it was mainly because, well, this is marketable. This is a good idea. We can do an Antichrist-type story. Mm-hmm. But it does feel like certainly the end of the movie is an incredible downer with the idea that if you just walked away from this film with no sequels, the idea is it looks like things are bad that the Antichrist is going to succeed. And of course, it comes at a time where a lot of that is making sense. We're post-Watergate, we're into, I guess, the oil crisis and a lot of other things. I mean, the 70s have nothing on 2020. (laughs) But at the time, that seemed like a pretty down time for America. So it kind of makes sense to say, you know what, this is in kind of the way Rosemary's Baby kind of ends that way too, with a very dark ending which would suggest an absence of God and a general win for the devil. And a win for the devil, like you said, God isn't putting in the work. The devil's doing a really slipshod job, and it's still working. Mm-hmm. So, And it also fascinates me, by the way, the 666 thing. We're like, check your kid's hair, and we find out that Troughton also had 666 birthmark and mm-hmm. everything. It's like, does the devil actually need to put a serial number on the Antichrist? 
to market. Is it's not it, even a serial number because it's the same every time. It's the same number. It's like, what is it, like a QR code where if you put your phone to it, it'll go to like antichrist.com. And then and, it'll show you where the daggers go. Yeah. Here's where the dagger. Well, they wouldn't because they wouldn't want you to figure that out mm. from the Antichrist side. Also, but, if they know where the daggers go, why doesn't he just constantly wear like some kind of armor that would prevent him from being stabbed? Well, also, we remember we one of the other things about continuity in the series is although it's not too bad through through to three mm. one of the things they drop immediately after this is the idea that all seven have to be used and that they have to be used in the cross shape they drop that completely like you any, get one in them any one of the daggers theory which actually four not to acknowledge it but i'm going to for a second <laughs> that was the out four used after three was to say well you know they didn't actually use all seven so it really didn't do anything so it's like all right Fair enough, because if you're going to go back to the original, that was what we were told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. there are things about this movie where I get why it has the stature it has. Certainly, it just could all come down to Gregory Peck on, on one level. Sure. You have someone of that, that scale working as your lead. And he, like you said, he really does a great job. He's very devoted to the performance. Way more devoted to the performance than he is to being an ambassador because he doesn't seem to do any ambassador and disappears for like weeks at a time on like a spiritual journey with his new friend, the investigative photographer. And the news isn't like reporting where is the United States ambassador and why is he doing this? I I found it actually, I hate to say this, but, but boring in a lot of places, his first movie. There, there are things about the following two that I really like. We'll talk when we get to it. But, but this one, there were passages where I thought I'm actually feeling the time passing and mm. just want us to get to it. And also, you were talking about Final Destination. There's also an element that coming when this does, you might argue that this one doesn't quite have it yet. And it's 76, so we're between like Black Christmas and Halloween. But certainly by the time you get to the next one, in 78 mm-hmm. same year as halloween and then the next one in 81 this series becomes sort of like a religious themed slasher movie series it's much. much more about the series of murders and interesting ways that people are killed that kind of aspect of the slasher movie this one not so much but it seems to be that's where this trilogy finds its identity as it moves forward and maybe in a way weirdly it starts to get a little bit more fun as like a horror movie to watch than this one is. Uh, so I really can't say, I, I think one of the best things I could say about this is Jerry Goldsmith does some of his best musical work, I think in his entire career in all three of these movies, arguably, I think his finest work is in three, but he won an Oscar for this one. The only time he ever won an Oscar. Interesting. And uh, his work through all three of these is beautiful and it's quite impressive to be able to do the score for an entire series and keep it consistent in tone. And he does that. And that's that's excellent. Apart from that, the rest of it is, it's not as good as the reputation it has would suggest. It's a couple of iconic moments that are too far apart with not much going on in between them. Like, yeah. it's great for a clip show. <laughs> and it's great for inspiration for other things. You know, you have little moments like Damien like riding his big wheel around Mm. inside the house which is something 
that everybody kind of remembers more maybe from The Shining, where you've got Danny riding his big wheel around the hotel. And I also think it might be Terror in the Isles that uses that as as one of the main clips from this. And so a lot of us grew up seeing that scene, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the whole movie, but that scene. And I think, which has technically a fantastic fall thing too, where they did the thing with the floor and looks like she's going to the floor. Like mm-hmm. it's like a nice bookend to Martin Balsam's Fall and Psycho, two great falling scenes that are accomplished with interesting technical trickery to make it look good. Before we leave the first film, though, it's worth pointing out that we watched these on the Scream Factory box set, and obviously we love Scream Factory. I can say that knowing I'm not going to get anything out of it because we tried <laughs> and nothing. So I love I, you. I bought everything Scream Factory. They're usually wonderful, which is all the more strange then that our experience of watching these became as a subthread our joy at the absolutely insane subtitles that someone wrote for these movies. And it starts with this movie where when they go to to start investigating the kid's birth and speak to several people who speak Italian, the subtitles say they're speaking in Latin, which I'm sorry, but is not true. (laughs) (laughs) You're not sorry. It's just not true. And you also mentioned, by the way, and I had to make a note that at one point when the phone rings, the captioning said cricket chirping. (laughs) (laughs) So somebody, I don't know, is somebody on like some kind of narcotics when they did the it's insane. Or they put on the wrong movie while they were doing Like, I don't know. But yeah, the farther we go into it, the more magnificent the subtitles are. I think three, three has my favorite subtitles because somebody who was in charge of that decided, I'm going to subtitle everything. <laughs> every noise, every creak, every shift in a chair, every time you like touch a piece of paper and it rustles, you're getting a subtitle. And it's why I really recommend sometimes watch a movie you already know, but with the subtitles on. Because we find it's a good way to make sure we really get the context of what's going on. Sometimes people have an aside or they're talking over each other and you miss exactly what they are saying or there's a background character talking. And it's a really interesting way to pick up on finer details that you might not already see or hear but also sometimes clearly it's wrong and i don't know what it would be like to like truly require the subtitles and not like not be able to fully hear the film and somebody picks up a telephone after it says crickets chirping and you think that is the weirdest phone like is that something to do with the plot does satan control the bugs like what is this (laughs) be a better movie mm-hmm. well we move on to damien omen 2 and i have to say right from the outset so like two years later they're like oh we got to make a sequel to this because it's successful they decide to jump ahead a little bit which immediately starts creating a problem that compounds itself significantly by the time you get to the third movie which is what i was suggesting when i mentioned 1976 mm. basically by the time you get to final conflict in 1981 based on Sam Neill as Damien in that movie and the age Damien is supposed to be, the events of the first film have to now take place in the 50s, which is insane if you actually care about the continuity of the series because now when you go back to the original film and watch it, you have to believe that all these 70s cars you're looking at and everything is happening in the 50s. Basically, the first movie then doesn't exist. 
I mean, now we're all used to this with the Marvel multiverse stuff and everything. But back then, it would have been weird to try to explain to somebody, okay, the omen didn't actually happen, but Mm. a version of the omen happened in the 50s now. And it's just a multiverse omen, you know. But that's that's what happens as he ages faster than the movies come out. Right. The Black Death. 1334. Abraham Lincoln's death. 1865. Charles I. 1649. Oliver Cromwell. 1658. Thomas More. 1535. Thomas Beckett. 1170. The Black Prince. 1376. But in Damien Omen 2 is 78, and we get another person whose career pretty much starts and stops almost entirely with Damien. Jonathan Scott uh, Scott Taylor is Damien in this. And I have to say from the outset, all my life I have told everybody my favorite one of these three, and I know it's falls into what some people would refer to as guilty pleasure, although I hate that phrase, is Final Conflict. Revisiting 3 with you, I felt like I had a much lower opinion of that one now. Mm. I see flaws that I didn't see when I was younger, and for whatever reason, I can't even recapture now exactly why I liked that one as much as I did, but I definitely feel now my favorite of these three is 2. And one of the things that I like the most in 2 is I genuinely believe that given a ridiculous one-note kind of character on the page, this kid who plays Damien in two does a phenomenal job. Because with the... And again, I also don't think there's nearly as much thinking or creative effort being put into these that we might be finding in Mm -hmm. them, like a lot of things. But I do appreciate that it's there. And one of the things that I love about two is that having set up the idea in one that it is possible to be the Antichrist and avoid that fate, resist it, you actually get a lot of dramatic tension early in this film from the fact that we quickly figure out Damien doesn't actually know what he is. And as he finds out what he is, he's not happy about it. And in particular... He has a very deep love for his brother, who is, well, not a brother. His cousin. His cousin, who's like a brother to him, because now in this one, basically, we find out that Gregory Peck's brother, William Holden, who famously refused to be in the first Omen because he didn't want to be in a horror movie, (laughs) and two years later, he's like, yeah, I'll do that. He's taken him on. It's interesting, too. In order to create sequels, they immediately had to back off of what the original plan was, because the original writer had him end up quite literally holding the president's hand at the end of the first movie. Mm -hmm. And apparently, if he'd written it, he would have followed up on that and had Damien in the White House. But for whatever reason, they decided, you know what, that doesn't give us enough room, so let's keep him one step away. And Holden's character is the head of Thorne Industries, and he's well-connected, but he's not in the White House. And Lee Grant is his wife, his his second wife. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, then we meet a bunch of people who all look very suspiciously like they're all arrayed around Damien to protect him, including Lance Henriksen as the, the head of the military academy he's been sent to. And, but he doesn't know. And so his cousin, who's like a brother to him now, he loves him. And it's my favorite scene, I think, or one of my favorites in the whole movie is when he knows what he is, he says to him, come with me. Stay with me by my side as I take over. And that cousin decides, no, I'm not doing it because I've decided I'm too Christian for this. It's like when the Antichrist asks you to come along with him. He begs him. And begs him. He even says, don't make me beg. And it's like at that point, even if you'd said no first, you say yes. 
And this idiot decides to turn down everything and gets an embolism for a, the gift. Which I also love that moment because when he does kill him or allows him to die by whatever suspicious means happen, mm -hmm. he screams. And it's like the, the one problem I have with this movie that I told you at the time, too, is that character arc up to that moment is wonderful. And he doesn't want to be the Antichrist and he doesn't want this to consume him. And then at a certain point in the movie, he seems to have just decided, all right. And then for the rest of the movie, he's doing like these knowing, like looking down on everybody from above smiles while people get murdered left and right. And what I couldn't figure out was there's something missing here because what changed his mind? Yeah, it's like maybe there should have been a scene because you get the maybe the first third of the movie is you seeing that there are some people adjacent to Damien who are made uncomfortable by him and feel like there's something off, something wrong about him. And then you have the family members around him who are sort of saying like, he's had a weird tough life, this kid, and he's nothing but nice to us. And, you know, it's fine. And then you have the like protectors who are very clearly creepy and protecting him. And he's just sort of there, just sort of being a kid and not understanding like why there always has to be so much drama around him all the time. And when it gets to the point where the people who are in the know of what's going on with Damien and Satan and like the whole grand plan tell him like, this is who you are and, you know, embrace it. He freaks out for about five minutes. It's a great scene where he runs to the dock. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why me? And then that scene cuts. And after that scene cuts... He has come to terms with the fact that he's the Antichrist and this is what's going to happen. Yeah, it feels like something was cut or it is missing. It feels like it. It feels like it's missing a scene. Because ultimately, I think the reason that this movie holds up a little more than the other two, and I preface this by saying I'd never seen two or three before. Oh, that's right. We, we didn't say this. you'd only ever seen the yeah. first one. Yeah. Because I just sort of felt like, but this is such an amazing standalone movie. Like, why do you have to continue the story? And really the answer is, this second movie is such a beautiful, like, allegory for puberty. And, like, that transition from childhood to adulthood. The, like, pressure of feeling like you need to live up to the expectations of your family and of the trusted adults in your life. You know, for every kid who's told their parents like you know i really want to go to art school and they're like no you're you're gonna be a lawyer no you're everyone, the antichrist everyone, yeah and it's like that's the moment right, <laughs> right. where he's like i kind of just want to be a human and they're like oh that's sweet dear but you're the antichrist so you're gonna have to just own that like in our family we're antichrists like that's what we do and it's kind of amazing because there's that struggle of not wanting to be different from others and we're missing that little piece of acceptance yeah i don't get where that happens especially where it's it happens he he has to deal with losing someone that he clearly loves a great deal mm -hmm. and also it's interesting too by the way is that obviously it's it 
it's not a family member because he's not actually blood related to any of them. But he he's his cousin by the original adoption and he mm-hmm. treats him like a brother. So I'm not saying this is actually there, but there's a deep love there that you could theoretically pick up a little on a thread of there's some aspects of sexuality in the third one that really come to the fore that you said also veer into some very negative stereotypes in the third one too, Mm -hmm. that if you wanted to, you could kind of maybe see in his relationship with his cut with his so-called cousin, you know, that he's, he's capable of loving this other person, but obviously, you know, it goes horribly awry because this person can't, he can't, he wants him to be with him, but he can't be. I mean, one of the beats I think that's also missing is maybe some kind of explainer that says, you know, the last time the Antichrist was born, we were like a little too confident with it and just assumed like he'd figure this out. He'd know, like for all we know, the Troughton character from the first movie never had that sort of army of protectors looking out for him that it was just like he's going to be the antichrist and then he's like i choose not to be the antichrist they're like well crap we didn't realize that like when faced with all this glory someone would be like no thank you Mm -hmm. so this time they've set it up and arranged it so that in essence it's not really a choice no. He's not he's not able to make that choice of I don't want to be the antichrist. I want to be a probably crazy human and he doesn't really have that because they've kind of corralled him into where they want him to be. And In- that's kind of the purpose of all the protectors. Including with one of what plays as one of the movie's big twists at the end. Although you can kind of see it coming, yeah, but you can see it. I still always like the moment where it's like having set up, you know, the dynamic here is being similar to the first film to switch and then have Lee Grant's mother figure turn out to also be one of the protectors at the end is a nice touch. But yeah, I mean, the fact that she's the second wife, that she's Sylvia Sidney's character is like the matriarch of the family, never liked her and clearly suspicious of everything with not necessarily any real reason. But Jamie's always very cozy with her. They're very close. Yeah. And so that makes you know it makes for a nice beat at the end of course the other thing though is that as a as a second film that clearly was then set up with the idea that like well we definitely know we want to keep going potentially Mm. it basically just has to end exactly the same way you know with everything falling apart and damien being okay and it's clear that now he's kind of fully embraced it at the end but Another thing, too, as far as liking this one is it has better pacing. The deaths in this, again, we now veer sort of into slasher territory with a series of interesting set pieces. I told you when we were watching it, this had what, when I was a kid, what I thought was one of the creepiest deaths I'd ever seen in a movie that really disturbed me. I think mainly because I wasn't entirely clear what was happening is when... Uh, it's Alan Arbus who is the psychiatrist on MASH when he's Pissarian he works at their factory mm-hmm. and when like something goes crazy with the chemicals and they start like spewing out and he goes gray and is like like really literally gray and it was weirdly almost science fictional looking to me but I mean the thing is there are things in the world that can do things to the human body pretty quickly that are 
horrifying. I guess the idea was like it, it was like leaching the oxygen out of the air or whatever, like mm-hmm. asphyxiating him. But it was so creepy looking. And I think I was thrown by not knowing exactly what was happening or why he was gray that it always stuck with me. So it's like the deaths in this one, I remember. Like Lou Ayers Under the Ice is also a great sequence. It's a phenomenal sequence. The fact that you also get these elements of the deaths being partially about the pain and the torture too. It like gives you that very satanic feel to it maybe we can say there's also kind of a precursor to like the worst tendencies of that and heading toward like the torture porn of the future where you get the saw movies and mm. where like the movie is about how can we devise a particularly torturous death for a character yeah and this movie seems to be doing some of that well you also i mean mentioned sort of the influence it has had on final destination movies and i think that like rube goldberg effects of things where you have an investigative journalist who thinks she's pieced it all together. And much like every idiot who's about to be the second murder victim in a Columbo episode, she like goes to investigate it and figures out like Damien's the Antichrist. And in driving back to tell everybody about how he's the Antichrist, her car breaks down and she's like, what's this about? And as soon as she gets out of the car, she has her eyes plucked out by birds and then just like, runs around with no eyes out into the street and gets hit by a truck. Like the bird eye plucking wasn't enough. You have to then hit her with a truck. Oh yeah. And this is Meshach Taylor's first movie who everybody probably remembers Hollywood from Mannequin because who wouldn't remember him as Hollywood from Mannequin. And he gets to be bisected in an elevator, which is an extraordinary Friday the 13th style Tom Savini like moment. And it's like, really, you could do quite a supercut of elevator scenes in horror movies. It's like, never get in an elevator for any reason ever. Mm-mm. Take especially, the stairs. Take the stairs. Like, especially, like, you've just found out with chemical analysis that he has the blood of a jackal. Why get in the elevator? <laughs> just stay on the stairs. It's also the thing that drives me crazy in horror movies in particular where someone has very crucial information to share, but they don't actually share it. Right. Like we've talked about this as well from um, Halloween three, like season of the witch. It's like you have the woman in the medical examiner's office who like pieces something together and has this aha moment. And you don't exactly know what it is, but as the audience, you realize she's probably thinking this was like either a bomb or a piece of machinery or whatever it was. Maybe she doesn't know it's an android. But she calls someone. She's like, oh, sorry, did I wake you? I have something important to talk to you. Like, yeah, sure, we can do it tomorrow. It's like, no, tell him right now on the phone what the thing is. But instead, she hangs up the phone, goes back to it, and then gets a drill through her face. Mm-hmm. And it's like the same thing here. You like, you discover that this kid has friggin' jackal blood in his body and is seemingly unharmed by any dangerous chemicals. And you get on the phone and you're like, I got something to show you. Can I come down? Like, yeah, okay. Hang up the phone. No, you pick up the phone and you scream, this child has jackal blood. <laughs> Just and, start yelling it to everybody. And on... then you take the stairs. Right. Yeah, it's like every meeting that could have just been an email. Like, mm-hmm, yeah. you, you don't need to talk face-to-face about it. I will say that the even though Goldsmith won an Oscar for the first movie, I also think this, it turns out, 
this is the main musical motif of all three films that I think of most. There's mm. this sort of approaching beat of doom that's like the main Damien theme in this one that I think is the best piece, single piece of anything, and is instantly hummable after you've seen it. I mean, ultimately, in summary for this movie is... I didn't have high expectations coming in because the whole first movie is centered around the premise of is he or isn't he the Antichrist of like, is his father just crazy and racked with grief? Is he just like stressed out out of his mind? You know, the kid's weird, but most kids are weird. And the whole movie is sort of centered around that premise and that discovery. And then in the end, you learn, nope, he's the Antichrist. So when you start off this second movie and the audience already has the knowledge that this kid is 100% the Antichrist, you could drop the ball pretty badly. But it's kind of a brilliant maneuver of making it, okay, the audience knows he's the Antichrist. And the people around him who've been sent to look out for him know he's the Antichrist. But let's watch his journey of discovery as he finds out that he's the Antichrist. And that really works for this movie. But it also sets up the problem, like you said, where we're just treading water. That it's like the discovery part happens maybe a little too quickly. And so then you've just got half a movie, at least, maybe a little more, where he's just, you know, influencing events around him and then waiting for the third film in the series. Slay the Nazarene! And you, my disciples, shall truly inherit this earth! Which brings us to the final conflict, the movie that I thought for many years, was my favorite. And for all intents and purposes, was. But in revisiting it now, uh, falls very dramatically in the ranking for me. And I'd have to say, falls probably below the original, too, because the original at least has the virtue of being basically a, a mainstream studio film mm. with the production that comes with it. Whereas Final Conflict, which isn't horrible, per se, in terms of production, but it feels instantly cheesy on a lot of levels, not least the fact that, all right, now we get Sam Neill early in his career, and he's the grown-up Damien. And he fully knows who he is. And not only that, he's basically gone full Bond villain at this point <laughs> with the intention of deliberately doing all the things he needs to do to attain his power. And apparently has built up a huge network of followers who exist all throughout the world. But in particular, he's based in England where he also conspires to become ambassador. He's head of the company now. He's head of Thorne Industries. Mason Adams plays the president, which is also weird because he's like every commercial voice from the 70s and 80s. I think he did Smucker's, so it's like Smucker's brand presidency. And he, and he knows how to work him. Don Gordon, who is one of the great television actors mainly of like the 60s and 70s, people were actually further than that. People remember, he did Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. He's one of those actors who was in both of the great mm. sci-fi and like mystery shows of that time. And I love Don Gordon every time he turns up. And in this, he plays Harvey Dean, a character who couldn't be more like consciously named after the Watergate buzz <laughs> stuff. He's Harvey Dean. 
and he is apparently Damien's sidekick. He's working with him as like his chief of staff and has been with him for apparently a long time. And to me, actually, now revisiting, one of the things that came to mind that I never questioned before is, who the hell is Harvey Dean? He's one of the most inexplicable characters in the series because he's close friends with Damien. Mm -hmm. He fully knows exactly who and what he is. He works with him. And yet, at times, when certain things come up, he acts as if he seems surprised that Damien would want to do something evil or that they need to... I can't figure out Harvey Dean. Not least, of course, that ultimately this all comes down to a very long sequence in the movie where, basically in the third film, Damien is like moments away from achieving everything he's, he's and his father has ever wanted. He's fully on board. But it's the second coming, and Christ is about to be reborn, which, of course is going to be the challenge and potentially end to his reign. So one of the things that comes up, very biblical, is they have to kill every male child born in England uh, between a certain time and a certain time, because that's when it's prophesied to happen. Harvey Dean's own baby is one of them, kind of, sort of. And so that calls into question his loyalty, because Damien kind of wants to get rid of his kid, too. But speaking, by the way, about God's role in all this, when you get to three, God is apparently sitting up there quite comfortable with the idea that tons, just a pile of babies are murdered Everywhere. all around England, all of whom are innocent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure there are religious types who go, oh, no, but now they'll be in heaven with the Lord. It's like, that doesn't sound good. That yeah, but it's sound- like the same Lord who didn't see fit to perhaps intervene. <laughs> For the horrific deaths of the babies. And, uh, so, They're just all collateral damage in this whole thing. I don't know why I liked this movie as a kid. I can't quite figure it out. I mean, to, to a certain Sam extent... Sam Neill is charming. Sam Neill's fun yeah. as a villain. His performance is still good. And, and there are aspects of this, again, that very much fit the slasher mold. You go through a series of people who basically are being taken out, who are getting too close to the truth, leading up to the big baby massacre at the end of the movie. You also have the sort of, like, priestly supergroup... Mod Squad, A Team, whatever. Yeah. Of like rogue priests who each like bring a different skill to the priest group who's going to murder Damien. And there's something kind of enjoyable about that. They're also completely inept. They, They each are given one of the knives. Everybody gets one dagger. Don't waste it. Don't lose it. Okay, stay with the group, everyone. I can't remember what was your favorite. I know the caption came when the one guy is on fire (laughs) and swinging in plastic in the TV studio. Yeah, I'm going to look it up while we're talking because I took a photo of it and it was amazing. The captions in this movie in particular were bizarre. I wholeheartedly recommend everyone watch this movie if only for the captions. Make sure you have the captions Because on. the captions are just on, extraordinary. On the Scream Factory release. It has to be the Scream Factory mm. one. You gotta get that. Well, while you're looking that up, mm-hmm. I'll, uh, I'll also mention that one thing that has not changed for me, one of, one of the things that I grew up always being a fan of is I'm one of the fans, like, there there are things that always have fascinated me about, like, I grew up a fan of Star Trek and, and Star Wars for a while and many other things, comics and all that. And it's always fascinated me what things I've been incredibly fanish about, aspects of those things, 
and yet not other things. So, for instance, what I mean is there are Star Trek fans out there who would be able to tell you what star date every episode happens on. I don't remember any of that. And yet I would say that I was a huge fan of a lot of these things, but there's stuff, minutia I remember, and there's minutia I never cared about or focused on. One area, though, that I always loved was I always loved paying attention to the music. John Williams scores and Jerry Goldsmith's stuff, especially the Star Trek stuff, and James Horner and all these people that wrote the music that accompanied the things that were my childhood. And I still feel that one of the finest examples of Jerry Goldsmith's work through his entire career is the music in Omen 3, The Final Conflict. The music he wrote for that movie is far, far better than that movie deserves. Mm. But it's the music that is intended for the themes of the film that it doesn't have any hope of living up to. And one of the things that I'm still in awe of is there's a sequence where the actual birth of Christ is happening and the next, the baby that will be the, the new Jesus or however that works is coming. And, and Rosanna Brazzi and the, and the priests are at the observatory watching the stars come together like the new star of Bethlehem. The moment is occurring where they'll be able to know where is the baby and find the baby and protect it. Which, Which, by the way, apparently they do in advance of the baby massacre, but nobody bothers to protect any of the other babies. And they, also, like, why didn't Satan's side think to just, like, follow the follow star? The, follow the priests and the star, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that sequence... I can't imagine, even someone who at that point was already of a certain stature, I can't imagine what it must be like to be the the composer of music for a film and open the script and find out, okay, this is the part where I score the second coming of Christ. <laughs> and he's just like, all right. Let's, but he's also let's, scoring the baby murders. Yeah, let's get in there and do this. And it is an extraordinary piece of music. And there's also some, like the fox hunt. There's a the the sequence of the fox hunt that has music in it that feels like it's it's like washing over you from another level. The music is amazing, and it does not deserve to be dragged down by the rest of the film. I think Jerry Goldsmith's work overall in the Omen movies is excellent, and in the final conflict, he achieves a certain level of just it's just sublime work in that movie. I think alone, just listening to the soundtrack of The Final Conflict, I would recommend to anybody. So soundtrack and subtitles. Soundtrack and subtitles. Yeah, that's... <laughs> so I found my uh, screen caps that I took. And first of all, yeah, the first priest who tries to go after him has the brilliant idea of all just like swing onto a TV set commando style with the dagger. And as they go past him, I'll stab him. But like a cartoon, just completely misses. And then catches fire from like blasting into the set pieces slash pissing off Satan. And he's just on fire. His God not protecting him, just letting him burn to death. But this movie in particular wowed me with the simultaneous subtitles. There's like constantly things happening and you'll get two sets of parentheticals on there that are meant to tell you the sound effects. Right. So in that scene... The first one says, man on fire screaming, and underneath of it, also in parentheses, says, people chattering. (laughs) Like, they're just having a conversation, shooting the breeze, but also there's a man on fire screaming. (laughs) And the second one that I took, the screen cap, you've got Dean sitting in his home office with his, like, 
Oh my god. His big phone call where he's got to start calling all of the like true believers and tell them, look, uh, I'm assigning you a baby to murder. I've got a list. He's got a phone in a box. Yeah. He's got like a PTA phone tree of people he's got to send out to murder babies. And each person has been assigned a particular baby. And some of those persons killing babies are other children. So he's just sitting on the phone, like completely eyes glazed over, staring off into the middle distance. And you get, two captions on the screen simultaneously the first parenthetical is phone buttons jiggling and then underneath of that is somber orchestral music (laughs) and it's magnificent like just a chef's kiss to all of that not so much to the plot which is in a sense very one note it's just evil sam neil is evil and you just watch him being evil knowing he's evil and he's very full of himself and some people like slapdash try to stop him you get another person who's like i'm gonna investigate him and figures out he's the antichrist and he's brainwashing my son but also i'm gonna go to his house and uh, i'm gonna enter into a delicious seduction with him that involves like a lot of brutality and she seems to be both okay with it not okay with it and it's really hard to tell what they were trying to get at there but ultimately he still ends up like murdering her son and she just like has a moment where she's just like ah and And by the way the death of the son comes at the very end when he's looking for Christ at like the abandoned church ruins where Christ is apparently being held, uh, let's go back say old prisoner, <laughs> where he's being protected. <laughs> I don't know why I was going to say held prisoner. I mean, you know. The Christ baby is being held prisoner somewhere. That's a different show. That's a different movie. And, um. It's like a henge somewhere. And I have to say, like, as the music plays and you get this, like, text on the screen, like, and now his glory has been reborn. Because that's the other thing I've always said is that the the most depressing thing about the series, the most disappointing thing is that you kind of have to end it with Christ winning because it's harder to sell the idea that we're now in a world where the Antichrist. I mean, the thing is, you could do that. I think now they could sell the ending differently. Yeah, well, now I think we all believe it. I think they weren't willing to go there in the but early it, 80s yeah but it's sad to, it's kind of disappointing at the end of this movie it's like oh damien has to lose and and the thing is though there's a scene where then you see this person carry her son to her and i've read a lot about this when we watched it and i've and for some reason when i was a kid i always interpreted that last moment as that's christ who's like reborn and like instantly transformed into an adult that's what i thought and he's carrying the son over and the text, part of the text you see on the screen says something to the effect of, I don't remember the exact thing, I'm not going to bother looking it up, says something to the effect of there will be no more death, there will be no more sadness or whatever is his glory. So I had always thought that that last scene meant there's Christ bringing her son back to her and he's going to come back to life. But apparently I'm alone in this because most people say, that's actually Rosano Brazzi's character of DiCarlo, who's knocked out by Damien mm-hmm. early in the scene, but not necessarily killed, bringing the dead body still of her son over there. So I'm thinking, this is not a victory. And if, like, Christ is back, how good is that? She still lost her son. 
Plus all those dead babies, uh, a couple dozen dead priests. And one of the things we su- I was suggesting earlier that you kind of picked up on is the relationship with the son can be seen as somewhat disturbing. There's an almost romantic quality to it. You thought, you know, it was there. Yeah, because the child is just so enamored with him yeah. as Satan. And then there are a couple lines of dialogue. Um like Harvey Dean's character early on, we're, we're very much shown why perhaps he is with the Antichrist, which is that he sounds like he's a homophobe, among many other things, probably. And he makes some kind of crack about gay people. And uh, Damien's response is like a like a cheeky, well, they are all God's people. Doesn't he say something like that? Something like that. And Dean laughs. And it's like one of the things you were saying was... It almost feels like there's an undercurrent in this movie of Damien as sort of like the like horrible stereotype of like an evil gay, like crypto gay kind of character. He seems to have a strange sexuality that could be interpreted that way and makes this whole thing then yeah, really toxic. He's like simultaneously like the worst kind of tropey crypto gay character, but also completely uninterested in anything sexual except just as like a tool for something. Like right. he doesn't seem to actually feel like that kid you met in two who like genuinely felt anguish at having to choose between what was seen as his destiny and the love he had for this kid he'd grown up with like a brother like that's gone you just have somebody who is clinical mission driven very focused i'll use people i'll kill them i'll sleep with them i'll beat the hell out of them i'll set them on fire if i have to and it's like it's not the same person because even in the first movie damien's a kid and you have to like kind of except that Damien doesn't really know what's going on in the first movie. He's just sort of a vessel. So there's a lot of things that become more problematic when you give Damien like full knowledge and agency of what's going on. I mean, arguably that's one of the biggest flaws of this movie is there's not a lot you can do with it once you have the Antichrist as a fully functioning, like sentient adult character it's like then you really can only go a few ways and the way they went is kind of like the most predictable where he's just the purely evil bond villain who wants to take over everything and you know it, and talk about bond villain, i mean like that one scene in particular where they kind of like meet in the canyon and he like meets all his followers in the canyon it's the big slay the nazarene scene where he does his big speech and it's like you know they talk about one note there's there's no there's no development to his character mm-hmm. at all None. And in retrospect, I would say I don't see the character from two in him at all either. Interesting, by the way, we we noticed this time I'd never picked up on it all the years I saw this is that they actually had a they, they didn't seem to be all that concerned with really connecting dots all that much in these movies. It's almost like the third one feels more like a riff on the idea than an actual sequel. Mm but they do reference uh Robert Foxworth's character from 2 remember Dean is like a cu- at least a couple times he's on the phone with Paul mm-hmm. who's apparently still working at Thorn Industries and still like a major player there but we never see him we just know that he exists he yeah. still exists and, so, and I thought that's interesting it's actual continuity from 2 to 3 
But apart from that, you could be forgiven for thinking this is a different version of the character that's just like, well, what if the Antichrist was an adult now? Now let's see what happens. Yeah, and then ultimately, like, the resolution to all of it is that literally for, what, like, 30-some-odd years, God's just been sitting in a chair watching everything happen, protecting no one, just piles of bodies, massive amount of death, people getting hit by trains and trucks and drowned in rivers and suicides and dogs ripping people apart. Like, just chaos, right? Like, chaos constantly. Not only that, but Thorn Industries has been allowed to essentially position itself as a company that intentionally causes famine as a way to enslave people into depending on them by then solving their famine problems. And it's like all of this, apparently, God is like, well, yeah, that scans. And then in the end, just like waits for the moment. And then when the moment's right, it's like, okay, everything's aligned. Uh, Somebody stab him. Well, as you said earlier, boop. Basically, (laughs) it's like God just like sends like a, a broken down, anguished, distraught mother who's like just watched her son get murdered by the guy who had some like pretty weird rough sex with her the night before. And she just, like, loses it. It's sort of like we've said in watching a lot of other horror movies, when you get down to, like, the final girl, which she kind of is. She's kind of your final girl in this slasher. And you think, yeah, they survived the movie, but, like, their life is going to be nothing but misery and trauma forever. And, like, she essentially gets used by god because apparently god like can't grasp things because it's like a ghost or something like it's like how ghosts can't pick stuff up like god's like well i can't do it myself but uh if you could just do that for me it's a little uh, one stabby just a little stabby a little boop and uh that'd be great and then just like I don't know, goes back to drinking margaritas on a cloud or something. I like, they have them up there. That's a guess. It's a guess. But it's like none of it feels very triumphant. It's like you don't feel like the victory was earned on the side of quote unquote good because good has not really been doing good for a couple decades. And also it's one of those examples of like the worst kind of storytelling in a sense. The story ends just because it has to. Yeah. It just ends. There's not really any sense, like you said, there's no real sense of triumph. And even Damien's death is like weirdly unsatisfying in that he just basically gets to be insulting in the last moment. So like, you, you won nothing. It's like, well, they kind of won in a little bit. Yeah, and there's <laughs> not even like a battle between the Savior and the Antichrist. It's like by virtue of the Savior existing, the Antichrist is defeated. And not only that, but they really don't, I mean, not that I would... It's like like I'm advocating in the plot for more baby murder. But it's like they're only murdering boys, like boy babies born on that particular date in that stretch of time. Like it doesn't even occur to them that like the savior could be born into a woman's body. Like, Which, by the way, is kind of a bit of 
what they played on a little bit in four, which I told yeah, you about. You did. I mean, um, fair enough. So you know, not not advocating for that, but it's short sighted on their part. But you also never see the savior. You never meet the savior. There's never a moment where you see like some glowing, shiny, perfect little angel baby. You get like one, like one tiny glimpse as he comes into that room of what looks like like a shining silhouette of what i think is supposed to be like the christ spirit or something but it would have been so much more interesting if like a glowing christ baby had like a final like marvel battle with damien with like each one of them firing energy beams at each other and christ beams would be like blue because i've just decided now that that's good and damien's beams would be red because of course evil they would. And they would just be standing there like, like, and be a little baby, kind of like Yoda in the prequels. And it would be a little baby jumping around and firing things mm-hmm. at Damien. And that would have been a better ending. Why is Christ always a baby in these things? It's like Damien's a full grown adult devil. Yeah. And then, like, the Christ baby just, like, exists and whoop, it's over. Is, is it Talladega Nights? Yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> like, why does it always have to be baby Jesus? That's my favorite. And it's like, <laughs> I never really understood that either in the sense of why wouldn't the Christ figure and the Antichrist be born at the same time and then at a predetermined moment in their lives, like, meet and, like, match wits? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like God saying, God, you're so bad at this. I can let you kill everyone for 30 years, but all I have to do is throw a glowing baby at you. And then you're defeated. And it's like, yeah, but you waited 30 years to do that. Why don't you just have them born together and they can just sort this out when they're infants and, like, problem solved? Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Latosky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLitovsky, that's NBLitovsky, and Arnold at Dr. The Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were The Omen, 1976, Damien Omen 2, 1978, and Omen 3, Final Conflict, 1981. Now, and forevermore, do you hear me? Fools in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted cities at www.atvpublishing.com. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am.